From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. The view is magnificent. And just as sinister as it is magnificent. Sinister because this is the perfect terrain, the perfect country for mortar attacks. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little audio trinkets we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and then bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. Almost every star that's visible with a human eye, I guess, is visible. That's a beautiful sight. These are things over which the intellect has no control. There was a big shooting star just now. And uh, that was uh, mortars. The subject of Vietnam, the country of Vietnam, the history of Vietnam is haunted by ghosts. Since the end of the war almost 40 years ago, soldiers have come home, communities have been rebuilt, and relations have normalized. But the complications of the conflict will not be put to rest. Survivors are still plagued by traumatic memories. Families still mourn lost loved ones. Spirits remain unsettled. Today on ReSound, Voices of the Unrested. Stay with us. Should I be scared? In 1966, Michael Baranowski took a reel-to-reel tape recorder with him into the Vietnam War. Today, it's hard to imagine lugging such a big, heavy piece of equipment into a jungle during a war. But we're glad he did, because that tape recorder enabled him to capture the sounds of jokes, songs, bombs, and bullets in the demilitarized zone he was in. And it was these eerie, ghost-like recordings that survived him after he was killed later that year in an ambush, because he'd already sent these tapes home to his family in Pennsylvania. Thirty-five years later, the tapes that he sent home ended up in the hands of radio producers Christina Egloff and Jay Allison. Every death is a tragedy, and I don't buy into the any given death was more tragic than the others, okay? But in, in this, of all the 58,000 tragedies, this is one that's very close to me. Again, there's so much to tell you about. We've been real lucky with the rain so far. It's rained only about four of the days we've been here, and the rest of the time we've been busy every hour, every minute, with setting in and digging in, preparing fields of fire, clearing fields of fire, patrolling, ambushing, standing 50% security at night, stringing up barbed wire, trip flares, and other goodies. The terrain is majestic. It's like something out of Heidi. The view is magnificent. And just as sinister as it is magnificent. Sinister because this is the perfect terrain, the perfect country for mortar attacks. And the VC have uh, made use of it. My name is Tim Duffy. 
at the time I was in Vietnam, I was Corporal, Corporal Tim Duffy, United States Marine Corps, 2199108. Mike at the time uh, was uh, Lance Corporal uh, when we were together in uh, October and November of 1966. Here's another man you'll get to know through the tapes here if uh, I'm able to hang on to the recorder. Mr. Tim Duffy. I got to know Mike back in Okinawa. He introduced himself one night. We, we met in Okinawa in uh, uh, September of 1966. Then we took the USS Iwo Jima down to Vietnam. Then we moved up to what was called Payable Hill, which was located between the rock pile and the Razorback, approximately four to 5,000 yards south of the demilitarized zone in Quang Tri province. And early on, I was sitting in on my rack writing a letter to my parents, and I looked up and I saw a guy playing with a tape recorder. He saw me looking at him, and I'll be doggone, he, he stood up, walked down, and says, Hi, my name's Mike Baranowski. I have the recorder here, and I'm going to try to keep it elevated off the ground and away from everything here. I'm going to try to keep it up in the air because everything I touch here eats through my skin or bites me or <laughs> rots Stay something. <laughs> this, is, this is something else. The grass will cut you. The mud will rot your uh, skin. This is something else. We're in my bunker, or actually not even the, the bunker because the Marine Corps calls them fighting holes, dug down into the side of the mountain, into the mud and with, a, with a mud bench and, a, and a, a grenade sump. In case a grenade lands, you kick it down under the uh, hole in the floor. And what we would do was during the day you had some free time if you were not on patrol or on operation. You'd have like four hours on and four hours off whole watch during the day. So if Mike happened to have his free time while I'm on whole watch, he would come down with his tape recorder and we would tape while I'm on whole watch. This is the 35-watt voice of station MOXE, broadcasting to you from the swamps, jungles, boondocks, and infected salad of Fort McCourt home of the fighting 1st platoon of Hungry Eye Company, 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines defensive perimeter, just north of the rock pile and just south of the demilitarized zone of Vietnam. This is Watered Concrete in New York with the late world news. Washington, from the nation's capital... I remember taping that comedy session, and we did it in my fighting hole, and I can see him sitting there doing that, that tape. This portion of our programming is brought to you by 20-Round Burst, the candy bar voted best tax waste of the war. Mike had made me go out and buy a harmonica, and he, taught, he gave me one lesson, how to hold my tongue and play one note at a time. But he knew he wanted background music for all this crazy crap, so he, you know, made me learn how to, quote, play the harmonica. And that's me in the background with the Marine Corps hymn. Don't be one of those unfortunates who suffer tragically from that malady sometimes referred to as Viet Cong yellow striped fever. Stoop, stoop, stupefy your friends and maim your enemies. Exercise your God-given right to kill or maim at a distance. It's a great feeling to know that you can wipe out your entire neighborhood. Yes, be the first kid on your block to rule the world. See your Marine Corps recruiter today. I, I really think Mike and I were just such kindred spirits, you know. Uh, ironically, I don't ever remember us sitting around talking about the potential that one of us would die. You know, we, we just were not sitting there waiting to die. I just don't know what to say. I'm a total loss for words here. 
I'm looking out of a window now, a hole in the sandbag wall in the back of the hooch, looking out toward the east, out toward home. Long way from home. Actually, I guess home is closer straight down. It'll be great to hear your voices again. I can't wait to get a tape. Uh, make sure that, that when you send a tape, it's on a Just sitting here listening to your tapes while we had breakfast. Terry, Mom, Cookie, and myself came up to Scranton. Sandy worked all day yesterday. Hi, Mike. Trying to straighten up, get ready for Thanksgiving. And I'm starting to get Daddy's lunch or dinner ready. He eats his dinner about 12 o'clock. So when I prepare his, I prepare for the whole family. Uh, yesterday, Mom took me to see Mary Poppins. And that was a really good movie. I enjoyed it very much. So take care of yourself and don't do anything I wouldn't do, as everybody in the school says. Bye, Terry. Hi, Mike. It's Cookie. So I came in to say a few words of hello to brighten your day. So I'll see you, Mike. And I appreciate you sending the money home, Mike, but I can't. I just doesn't seem right for me to spend your money, so I opened an account, and I'm putting the money that you sent home to me into the bank for you when you get home. I wish that you could be home for Christmas. That'd be the greatest thing in the world. Everybody's anxious to get home and get back to their families and their girls. But while we're over here, we're not wasting away thinking about it. We're glad and proud in a way that's different than, uh, than the pride you usually think of. I don't know. It's difficult to explain. Maybe I can do a better job on another tape sometime. Uh, this is where I belong, I think. More, more so than any place else. These tapes, I assumed these tapes were long gone. I never even considered the possibility they'd still be around. Then I met Cookie in 97, and I, <laughs> I couldn't believe that she had those tapes. I personally think that what he did with the tape recorder was practice. I think it would have been his portfolio when he came home. You know, he was going in radio when he came home, and he was just going to take that around and play it and say, see, this is what I can do. The uh, rest of the tape here on this side are sounds as I recorded them when they called 100% alert, which is pretty rare. The attack was officially, I guess, referred to as a probe. So what the NVA were doing is they were looking for a weakness. And that whole battle was taking place 30 yards from Mike and I. Hey, Carter. 
How many of you over there? Three of you? Three of you in that hole? Okay. Now, there's all kinds of garbage going on. We don't know whether it's outgoing or incoming. No words passed down like that. The illumination is being kept up. And every once in a while, a 60-millimeter mortar mission is called out to our left front whole mountain out there. In front of us looks like a nine-acre Christmas tree. Fire. Water Peter. High explosive. Now you can hear the illumination being kept up there. Those were heat rounds, high explosive. It's dark now. We're waiting for the illumination to go off. <laughs> That's a hairy thing. Hairy feeling. Sitting there in the dark with all that stuff going on. of the Enchanted Forest. Look at oh, Jesus. <laughs> That's too close. Airstrike. Wipe napalm all over that place. Look at that. I don't see any, any indication of fear in his voice. We didn't know but what we were going to have to grab our rifles and M14 or in, in grenades and have at it, because if they'd have broken through that point, then we were going to be in an all-out hand-to-hand combat. And that very potential, there was no way I could have stood there and did what he did. Now it's dark, quiet. Everything's been quiet for about 15 minutes now. I was just crouching down in the hole there, talking to a hand grenade. I thought it was the microphone. I realized what I was doing. And the rain's just on time. Now it'll rain the rest of the night. My memories of how Mike died are, he was walking point, and I was in, in a squad, I was carrying a radio, and I was probably five or six people back. And we were moving alongside of a Vietnamese village, and the village was deserted. And we, I heard one shot, which we knew was not an M14. We knew it wasn't one of ours. And then two more shots, and basically that was the end of it, and somebody shouted, Mike was down. And I ran up through the fence row, and I saw Mike laying off to the side on the ground. I moved up beside him, and in my memory, he was looking at me. And so I had to run off, and we dealt with the, with the firefight. And uh, then they had to set up perimeter security to bring in the medevac helicopters. And so thinking that Mike has been wounded, I'm sitting under the tree, and I, I'm kind of smiling to myself. Good, he's going home now. And uh, I, I thought he had gotten the million-dollar wound. And I began to 
kind of, in my imagination, I could see myself driving across the Interstate 70, driving into Norristown. I pictured a house like I think he would live in. And I pictured myself walking up the sidewalk, and Mike sees me, and he comes running out the door in a big hug, and welcome home, and let's go to New York City. That was our dream. Then the helicopters land. I look up, and I see four people, one on each ankle and wrist. Literally, they've, they've lifted him up like a sack of potatoes. They're running across the field. His head was hanging back, bouncing across the, the dirt. And I started to stand up and say, that's no way to treat a wounded man. And boom. And I knew he wasn't wounded. I knew he was dead. If you were to take me back to the beginning of it, and say, okay, now here's how it's going to end. Are you sure you want to do this? I think I'd still have to say, yeah, I want to do it again. And it's not the war, it's not the cause, it's not Vietnam. It's just the, the, the kind of, of love that you get in such a short, intense period of time. I think I can go to his grave now. I've never done it. Uh, and uh, take a copy of the tape and just kind of dig a little hole there, and maybe we'll put one of the a copy of the of the broadcast there for him. I don't know, but I think it's. I'm going to have to go tell him that that it worked. That he's been on the radio. You know, he made it. Well, uh, that's my hooch. But what I usually do is stumble around. And if I can find my way through the darkness, I come down here and sleep with my friends, the Arvins. What I think I'll do right now is uh, I'll go down and talk to one of the men that's standing whole watch here on the hill. <coughs> Who's here? Oh, how are you doing, man? Uh, Hi. You tired? No. Not tired, huh? No. I thought it would be uh, one of the Marines down in this hole. It's usually manned by a Marine. That's why you didn't hear the familiar halt who goes there. This is uh, one of my Arvin friends down here. His name is Nine. He's sitting here with his eyes half closed. The poor guy's been on watch. I don't know. How are you doing, Nine? Fine. Yeah, fine. You look like you're about to fall over. He's just sitting here on the sandbags right up on top he doesn't care who's out there <laughs> too tired to care about anything got they muga muga no got they muga means uh, maybe rain and he doesn't think so i don't think so either there are a billion stars visible tonight beautiful almost every night that's clear and now more and more nights aren't clear because the monsoon is fast coming. But those nights that are clear, almost every star that's visible with a human eye, I guess, is visible. It's a beautiful sight. Milky Way and all the constellations. Of course, they're a little bit different now that we're on the other side of the planet and looking at them from some weird cockeyed angle. I don't know. 
Hey, I've got some news for you. I made meritorious Lance Corporal today. How about that? Proud of me? Anyway, uh, the lieutenant handed me the paper, and he said, uh, Congratulations, Lance Corporal Baranowski. And I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything. Wow. You see that shooting star now? See that? It was a big shooting star just now. And, uh... That was, uh, mortars. It just fired maybe uh, 40 feet in back of me. This is so much easier than writing. You get all the right voice inflections. And uh, I can do it in the dark, of course, which is nice, except that this damn red blinker here is liable to get me zapped. So I've got my hand over it. But I'm not quite as awake as I should be when I try to tape. But just wanted to get this one off to you while I can, so that you'll have it and uh, know that I'm thinking about you. I think about all of you and miss you so much every day. You just don't have any idea, Mom and Dad, Cookie, Sandy and Terry, how good it was to hear your voices again. It was really wonderful. That's all I can say. What else can I say? It was really great to hear you all again. The Vietnam Tapes of Lance Corporal Michael Baranowski was produced by Christina Egloff with help from Jay Allison for the Lost and Found Sound series. The Vietnam Tapes also won the Best Documentary Gold Award in the 2001 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. To listen to any or all of the past Third Coast Award winners, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. While you're there, feel free to send us an email. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. I ask permission from the war martyr. I say, where are you resting? Wherever you are, let me know the place so I can draw a map and let your family find you and take you home. She would hear I, what he heard at his moment of death. She would experience the pain. Both Vietnam and the United States remain haunted by the war. In the U.S., some soldiers are still chased by vivid memories. But in Vietnam, the haunting is literal. There, it's believed, war deaths prevent the peaceful continuation of a soul as it journeys from this world to the next. These wandering souls are the subject of our next documentary. Vietnam's haunted, overrun with ghosts. Past wars created millions of what the Vietnamese call Hon Ma, or wandering souls. When a spirit possesses you, it can do a lot of things with you. 
It can make you experience things that never happened to you. And then you, you simply become them for a while and do whatever your new self wants you to do. Should I be scared? Yes. Hanoi doesn't feel like a ghost town. Two-thirds of Vietnam's population are under 30, and most of them seem to be riding shiny scooters down this street. Mum, dad and baby glide past the taxi, all on one bike. People squat down for dinner by the roadside on tiny red plastic stools. In the park, out-of-hours businessmen kick a shuttlecock around. While in the bandstand, middle-aged Vietnamese couples turn perfect circles in a Viennese waltz. I've come to the old quarter of town, to a street I've read about, Hang Ma. A girl pulls up on a scooter. She's here because she had a strange dream last night. I dreamt about my mother. She's dead. She said to me, Child, go and buy me some clothes made out of flowery fabric like this. Can we follow her as she buys her shirt? The shops on this street sell offerings to the dead. You can buy them jewellery, cars, flat screen TVs. Mobile phones are popular, so the dead can keep in touch. There's just one difference. Everything's made of paper. She's just choosing between patterns at the moment. We've got uh, one in deep purple, one in This packet has everything. It's got all the parts, everything. There's a telephone, comb, pen. She's 58. Don't you think it's a bit young for her? If she wears this set, it won't be too young. The Vietnamese burn their offerings to send them to the dead. But even though the clothes will go up in flames, the girl's taking as much care as if her mother were still alive. It's like any other shopping trip. Her husband's looking bored in the corner, the pushy shop owner's being a pushy shop owner. Whatever you think about ghosts, there's no doubt they're taken seriously here. Tell me more about the dream. In my dream, my mother and I were having a nap on the same bed. She woke up and patted my shoulder and said, Child, buy me some cloth. She was very fond of flowers. What will you do with the things that you've bought? I'll take them to my mother's grave. I'll invite my mother and burn them as gifts. Where do you think uh, your mother is now? I'm sure her spirit's still at home. But after a hundred days, she'll have to go. That's right, isn't it? After a hundred days, she'll have to leave. She'll have to go on. Mylan Gustafson is an anthropologist based in the US. She studies people's beliefs in ghosts and has seen things in Vietnam she finds hard to explain back home. The Vietnamese spirit world draws on elements of Taoism, Buddhism and Confucianism, as well as ancestor worship. Mylan tells me the difference between Vietnamese heaven and Vietnamese hell. If you wanted to 
die well in Vietnam and then go on to a happy afterlife as an ancestral spirit. You would have to die at home, surrounded by your loved ones, and you would have to have a funeral conducted in the traditional way. If those things happen to you, you automatically go on to become an ancestral spirit and you're happy and content and still involved with your family and you're given offerings, you're given food, you're remembered, you're loved. It's a wonderful, wonderful afterlife. On the other hand, if you die terribly, if you die in a violent way, unexpectedly, brutally, in a way that um, mutilates you, if you die as a young person, if you die as a person who hasn't had children, or if you die far from home, you don't join the afterlife the way ancestral spirits do. You don't, you're not anchored to any family altar like ancestral spirits are. You are doomed to wander in this limbo, this state of, of misery and hunger and aloneness for eternity. In many cases, the angry ghost would make the victim experience his or her moment of death. And it was my understanding in talking with mediums who would channel these spirits that the purpose of that was to make the living remember them in the most visceral way possible. It's a condition of eternal and perpetual hunger and, and misery. Hell, really, it's a state. And they exist just watching, being envious, being miserable, and taking out their anger on, on the living. And what are they envious of? The fact that we are alive. <laughs> From what I learned, this possession phenomenon, this uh, public health menace of angry ghosts attacking people has gotten worse since the 1980s. Economic liberalization improved the lives of the people in Vietnam. It's still a poor country, but not nearly as poor as it was. So as the people have more, the angry spirits feel that because they see their survivors having a little bit more, being able to make better offerings to the ancestral spirits, and they're more and more jealous. Had they been able to die and become an ancestral spirit, they would be getting Marlboros instead of the Vietnamese version of cigarettes. They would be getting pork instead of chicken. They're angrier because of it, because they're missing out on more. If you come from a culture that, that doesn't really believe in ghosts, it sounds very, very strange. Yes, it does. Do you believe in ghosts? Well, when I was in Vietnam, the simplest way to live and to deal with everything that I saw was to believe. So I would say yes. The Vietnam War created millions of these Hon Ma, or wandering souls. Some died in action. Others succumbed to diseases like malaria and typhoid fever on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What's it like to exist in this state of hell? Tang Dak Nguyen believes he knows. During the war, he was a major in the South Vietnamese Army. When communist North Vietnam won, he and his comrades were sent to a prison camp in the jungle. It wasn't until we got to the prison camp that we understood how desperate things were. We've taken it for granted 
that we would return to our families in a year or two. But that wasn't the case. Our government no longer existed. There was no one left to stand up for us. In our most desperate moments, we'd pray. One day, Tang's wife got news that he'd died in the prison camp. She needed to know for herself. So she set out with her child on a long and difficult journey. At last, she got close to the camp, where the track wound through the jungle. As she walked, she prayed to my friends, who died in the camp, asking them to help the living. She was saying to them, Please tell me if my husband is alive or dead. Then, after a while, she saw two prisoners emerge from the forest. She called to them, Do you know whether my husband Nguyen Da Thang is alive or dead? My wife still had hope. She didn't know what life was like in the camp. One of the two prisoners said, Be at peace, sister. He was playing chess with us yesterday in the camp. Don't worry. My wife was thrilled. She hugged our child, crying and speaking at the same time, saying, My child, your father's alive. My child, your father is alive. After that, my wife turned to thank the two prisoners, but she couldn't see them anywhere. Meeting two prisoners in the forest outside the camp was impossible. Every prisoner at Namha knew that no prisoner ever wandered about by himself without a guard following him. When my wife told me the story, I knew these were my friend's souls, the spirits of my fellow prisoners who had died. Tang believes his years in the prison camp have given him an insight into the suffering of his dead friends, who have become wandering souls. I've also experienced the pain they carry. I can understand how they feel. I was facing death before I recovered from my illness. I know how much I wanted to return home to my wife and children, how I longed to speak to them, to ask their forgiveness so that I could rest in peace. Because I thought... My apologies. I'm so moved. One of my friends, Thich Vu, died in the camp. Before passing away, he wrote a poem. This afternoon, by the river blood, I remember you and the children. My love for you is filled with tears. One of Tang's friends died in the camp. Every day, Tang would walk past the grave and he'd say to himself, Dao, you're stuck here. If you help me get out, I'll make sure you get back to your family. Tang never forgot his promise and when he was finally released from the camp, he carried his friend's remains home. For a long time, the families of defeated South Vietnamese soldiers were not allowed to search for the bodies of the dead. But in recent years, the government softened its position, and Tang is devoting the rest of his life to finding the missing. When I take our friends back to their families, I fulfill the promise I made them. I've helped them reunite with their families. That's what it really means to be brothers. 
If we only speak and pray, that would be just empty words. Sitting in a noisy street cafe at lunchtime, the ghosts seem a long way off. It's nearly 40 years since the end of the war, and Hanoi's 20-something seem more interested in gossiping over coffee and texting their mates. But this is a culture with a long memory for the dead. One 300,000 North and South Vietnamese soldiers are still considered missing in action. Their remains have never been found. Their relatives are still searching, hoping, finally, to bring their bodies and souls home. Some turn to psychics for clues. I'm driving out of the city to meet one, bouncing along a pothole dirt road. The rice paddies are dotted with graves. The dead, not wandering, but close to home, buried in family land. <laughs> Mr Moon, the psychic, is a rock star in these parts, but he doesn't act like it. For him, finding those he calls the war martyrs is a calling. He lives in a compound <coughs> down a long track. I'm amazed at the scale. There's a covered square where dozens of people are milling around, chatting and drinking cups of tea. It seems really crowded, but this is Mr Moon's day off. Tomorrow, hundreds of families will be here, desperate for his help. We sit cross-legged with him in the compound's pagoda, beneath rows of Buddhas and temple offerings, boxes of cakes and giant bottles of Johnny Walker whiskey. He's wearing a gold Rolex and a sharp suit, but he seems untouched by all these trappings and has an unnerving habit of looking past me as he talks. I ask him how he locates the missing dead. I ask permission from the war martyr. I say, where are you resting? Wherever you are, let me know the place so I can draw a map and let your family find you and take you home. Sometimes I can see how they died. I can see they were killed by artillery fire that their arms and legs are broken. I can see that straight away. Some say they are in great pain and miss their families terribly. Does that mean that the war is over for the spirits? The war matters are dead. In my experience, they don't feel any lasting animosity. There's an old Vietnamese saying, there's no enmity in the cemetery. Again and again on this trip, we're reassured that the ghosts of the North and South Vietnamese soldiers have become friends in death. Many people find hope in the ghost reconciliation. After a brutal civil war, the dead set an example that modern Vietnam still needs. Although the fighting ended decades ago, not everyone's been forgiven. But if the wandering souls aren't at war with one another anymore, why are they so angry? I asked the psychic, Mr Mun. There have been times when I've met spirits who have said they're angry. But they're not angry because they're lost. They're angry because of their families. Their children and grandchildren haven't paid enough attention to them. The spirits of the dead are very sad when we forget them. They want to be remembered. Well, V was a very cosmopolitan young woman. I met her when I was doing my field work in Vietnam. She had everything that 
all young Vietnamese women expressed to me that they wanted. She had a wonderful job. She made a lot of money. She had a lot of friends. She looked very glamorous. She had a beautiful wardrobe. She had a shiny new motorbike that she would zip around on uh, all over Hanoi. Just She was out and about and, and having a wonderful life, except for the fact that her older brother, who had been killed in the war, was haunting her. She would hear I, what he heard at his moment of death. She would experience the pain of the death, of, of the explosion that killed him. And then, in her possessed state, she would rip open her own chest uh, and mutilate herself. And she would do this a lot. So it was a very jarring uh, contrast. This beautiful young woman, very glamorous, and she revealed to me her chest that she would rip open with her very long fingernails and I could see bone it was bloody, it was a disgusting mess uh, scar tissue that hadn't healed, it, it couldn't heal because she was forever going back and, and, and tearing open her chest again it was quite startling and that's what um, you know, every person that I met had a story like that, they seemed so in some cases proper on the outside or happy on the outside but when you get the story of these people who are being haunted by the war dead, it's just, it's, it's heinous, it's horrifying and, and very scary. Is it possible that it is psychosomatic? That would be the other obvious explanation. It's an explanation that might have worked for some of my informants, but certainly not all of them. Um, and I think it's also rather mm, demeaning for an outsider to say, oh, what all of those silly Vietnamese people say is happening to them isn't really happening to them. They're not smart enough to realize that it's just psychosomatic. That is very arrogant and paternalistic. And uh, it's a, an easy explanation, too easy, one that makes Westerners feel good about their version of reality. But I met hundreds of people with this affliction. It's not something that can be easily explained. What are the authorities' uh, response to all this? The authorities are well aware that there is a problem. I met with a person, a man who worked in one of the ministries, and he confirmed it. He called it a public health menace. And I was very surprised that they would admit that to a foreign researcher, considering that uh, Vietnam is a communist nation and the Communist Party is officially secular and atheistic. Officially, all that stuff is considered baloney. So they have to walk a fine line between doing whatever they can to help the people move on from the war and not being seen as acknowledging these things exist. But they, they recognize it's a problem and they're concerned about it because it's holding back the people from being able to move ahead economically. They want Vietnam to be a tiger economy. And it's hard to do that when your population is, is haunted by the past. Go Chi Cemetery, a few hours from Ho Chi Minh City. There are 20,000 graves here, laid out in military rows. 8,000 hold unidentified remains. We carry plastic bags full of fruit. It's an offering, destined to moulder away in the rain. But our government fixer, Quang, checked each piece at the roadside stall, taking more care than if he were buying it for himself. The cemetery's empty. It's late on a muggy afternoon. 
We walk further and further from the sound of the road. We're following Din Chung Pham, a North Vietnamese veteran of the war. He's brought us here to tell us about his brother, Lam. When I was small, Lam would take me out to play, but then he joined the army. We never met again. Yet there was that one time when I dreamed I saw him still alive. When I woke up, I panicked. It was as if I've seen a picture. It was so vivid. Members of my family often had dreams about Lam. He said in dreams he was in the south, but he didn't say where. Lam's family waited for him to return at the end of the war, but he never came home. His fellow soldiers told them he'd died but no one knew where or when. The family consulted a medium. I don't really believe in psychics. But here in the empty cemetery, believing or not believing isn't the point. It's about family. Din Chung Pham has a tape of the medium channeling his brother's spirit. It's a precious possession. He stands by Lam's grave, holding a portable hi-fi, and plays it to us. I asked my brother, where are you lying now? He said, go to Ang Nhân Tây Cemetery, to the section on your right, that's where I am. I asked, how did you sacrifice yourself? He said he'd been wounded by aircraft fire. It hit him in the head and broke his left leg. I said, in order to find your soul, I've asked the help of a psychic. My father, my uncle, and my young siblings were all there to hear what my brother said. We asked a lot of questions. The answer were correct. With that, we felt a great range of emotions. These are things over which the intellect has no control. The medium led us to lot A6, which has 37 rows of graves. She said to look for a grave with pieces of broken vase or broken brick at its foot. She said there was grass growing alongside. I said, yes, exactly. I'm now standing at that grave. She said, congratulations to the family. You found the grave of your relative. After that, we were in high spirits. My father was particularly happy. He was 80-something then, but in excellent health. He told me, this is the fulfillment of my life's greatest wish to find the grave of my child, who sacrificed his life for the cause. Is his father still alive? He's alive. He's 86 and still living in our home village. I'll be very pleased if I could phone and tell him about this work. Hello? 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 Father, your son here? I'm at Lum's grave. No, not yet. We're doing the interview. 
Oh, sister, ask father to stop crying. It's not good for his heart. Take care of father. I'll buy an airplane ticket so he can come down here to visit Lam. Try to work with him so he can visit one more time. All right, father. Do take care of your health. Yes, yes. Goodbye. My father's very emotional. He's crying, and so are my sisters. Do you think your brother is still a wandering soul? I can feel his spirit. His soul is here, in this cemetery. My senses of both deep emotion and puzzlement. It feels as if he's taking part in this work. He's bearing witness. Din's brother Lam can finally rest in peace. He's no longer a wandering soul. Wandering Souls was produced by Kathy Fitzgerald for the BBC World Service. Vietnam Recordings, 1998, Aaron Zim. Recorded with a mini-disc recorder and quasi-binaural microphones. Washing Laundry. Women wash laundry in the river. Field recordist Aaron Zim has explored and documented the world through sound. We spoke with Aaron about the recordings he made in Vietnam. So my name is Aaron Zim. I'm a field recordist and sound artist. Uh, I was born in Chicago, but I currently live in San Francisco. I do a project called Quiet American, most of which is archived at quietamerican.org. It takes its name from the Graham Greene novel of that name, which I purchased on my first recording trip abroad, which was to Vietnam. Courtyard. Our hotel window open to the courtyard. When people have asked me or when I put instructions on various things about how to listen to recordings like mine or to mine in particular, I always suggest that the ideal thing to do is to lie down in the dark um, and close your eyes or otherwise remove all visual stimulation and distraction because as soon as there's something visual that you're attending to, it sort of monopolizes your attention in a way. It's very hard to turn off our preoccupation with visual stimulus. Buffalo. Bell-wearing buffalo are herded past in the hills outside of Sa Pa. The microphones that I use uh, are designed to give you a really rich three-dimensional stereo image, especially when you listen back with headphones. When you're wearing them, which you do on your head, they look more like headphones than microphones. In fact, they don't look anything like microphones. The result of that is it's possible to make 
high quality recordings with them in places where you might stand out or interfere with something that's going on or attract attention to yourself um, if you were using like a, a large conventional microphone or a, a boom or a shotgun microphone or something like that. You can kind of go unnoticed. Voice of Vietnam, state radio broadcasts in less touristed areas from bullhorn speakers. When the sounds that you're hearing are records of places that you yourself have been, um, that ties directly into your ability to summon your own visual memories, um, which are a truer record of what you yourself at the moment, what your brain or your mind or your soul thought were the most important aspects of what you're experiencing and the details that you yourself noticed, which are not, by and large, the same details that are highlighted or most present or most obvious or most likely to draw our attention when we're reviewing visual records that we make, like pictures and photographs. Hmong Musicians, a performance in a bar in Sapa. And I've always found that uh, the moments that I was required to sit still and attend um, both to what I was hearing and to every other sense in the environment that I was in while making a recording um, are the moments that uh, I remember the most clearly because that's when I was most fully present. Frogs. The periodic symphony of frogs in a suburb of Hoi An. Making recordings, uh, sound recordings in specific of the experiences that you have uh, is really putting away um, a treasure that you can come back to later in life. They really can take you back to uh, experiences that you've had or shared experiences in a way that no other medium can. That was field recordist and sound designer Aaron Zim. To hear more of Aaron's work and to find out more about the quasi-binaural microphones that he used to make field recordings, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Beach rain. Rain on my poncho as I stroll on the Na Trang beaches.
Sound is a production of the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Katie Mingle and curated by Johanna Zorn. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support also comes from the Old Town School of Folk Music, where a new class session begins January 6th. The sessions include lessons in guitar, banjo, tango dancing, singing, and more. Classes are available for beginners and advanced players, adults, and kids. More information at oldtownschool.org. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council, a state agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.